welcome to Inspiration Practice, a podcast exploring how artists and writers connect to inspiration and maintain a creative practice through ritual, hosted by me, Derek Denkla, a poet, professor of creative writing, and fellow seeker of inspiration practices. I'm here today I'm in the studio of Insert Blank Press with Matthew Timmons, uh, who is the author of Credit, The New Poetics, Joyful Noise, and terrifying photo, as well as various chapbooks and assorted ephemera. He's the editor and publisher of Insert Blank Press, as you might imagine, which produces innovative art and literature in Los Angeles, California. He's the director of General Projects. And I'm sitting here looking at beautiful prints made by, what's the name of the? The Little Friends of Printmaking. Little Friends of Printmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're super sweet and they're very vibrant. It's a wonderful atmosphere to have a chat in. I'm really grateful to you for um, agreeing to do this with me. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Love it. And I love this space, so this makes it really good. This is my first uh, post-pandemic in-person interview, and I feel like the CDC may be knocking on the door telling us (laughs) to put on masks. As soon as the podcast goes up? Right. They're like, what the hell are you guys doing? Um, It's uh, whatever. So I'm having like mask whiplash lately. I don't know if you are. So anxiety practice, is that the new title of the show for today? I think actually that's the subtitle. Subtitle right now, yeah. (laughs) I think inspiration and anxiety are, as an artist are very hard to tell apart. Yeah, Um, I believe that's very true. Yeah, because it's like things that bother you are often the things like the the stone in your shoe is that often you going. The, yeah so yeah. sometimes inspiration isn't like the cool sunset it's like the <laughs> asshole who took your parking space <laughs> yeah. or the last president or, yeah anyways yeah, right right but that's a good transition to my usual first question is the what you ate for breakfast question but it like what's your do you have a daily practice that you have like a ritual practice that like you know that gets you going or do you, is there another way that you sort of get to the page yeah, so I was thinking about this beforehand uh, because of, I, I listened to the show enough to know that this is your first question. And uh, I mean, it's a funny thing because I think that my answer initially is like, no, I don't have a ritual. Pr- I don't have a regular everyday practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been freelance for over 10 years. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, you're half the time you're looking for jobs and half the time you're you know, you feel like you actually have like enough time to not just look for other gigs, but also like make work, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, running the press, you know, getting to the page is happening all the time. Right. Right. Sometimes it's not my page. It's Mm -hmm. always kind of my, I mean, in a way it always feels like this is my space, my page. I fill it with, you know, the art that I like. I publish books because, you know, I've read the ones out in the world and I feel like, uh, you know, we need this other one too, Mm. you know, it's like, you know, I think they're important. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a variety of ways that I end up in the same place. And that is actually, that sounds kind of like a bummer, but, but I, I would, I would say actually it's a, it's a great thing, you know, Mm -hmm. the other, the, but, and so my first answer was of course, no. And then I realized that actually like it's just over the last, like since last Thursday, I've completely re rearranged and redesigned my office. Mm. And I'm also that person who like, I know where everything is. Mm. Like, I know where everything in the off in my right, office right. is. You're like you the know? intern's nightmare. Cause they're like, what's the I, filing system? Oh, Matt's brain. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's why I've never been great with interns. Yeah, no, I'd say, <laughs> but that's a, that's the trouble with a lot of, um, you know, artists and, and, and yeah. uh, like and undertakings, it's hard to translate your process to someone else. It's an acceptable mm-hmm. level of OCD in our social like world, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I hear that. it's like, it's like, it's okay, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> cause I know where the stuff is, but then, uh, but then, yeah, but, and I feel like that is sort of a daily practice that like, I mean, not to like argue for. Uh, certain mental illnesses as also possibly an aesthetic practice, but mm-hmm. but I feel like my OCD also lends itself well to a, a kind of aesthetic practice as mm-hmm. well. Like, you know, if it is just as simple as, like, making the gallery look nice, mm-hmm. is it if it is just as simple as, like, you know, I do a lot of appropriation, appropriative writing, mm-hmm. like, finding the ticks in found language Mm, that mm -hmm. kind of make it characteristic you see that little thing that's you know like you said it's scratching an itch Mm -hmm. it's the guy who took your parking place so then you decide that you know tomorrow you're just going to get there five minutes earlier right 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 and uh 
So, I mean, in a, it, so in a lot of my writing in the appropriative practice, like I'm finding certain ways to show the reader mm-hmm. aspects of language and address that I find inspirational right, in a way right, or right. interesting or like, mm-hmm. you know, gets my goat, as you say, mm-hmm. you know, so like the recent chat book that Harold Bromwitz published on Yo Hibis Labs. I mean, that honestly came out of doing Google searches for another project Hmm. and then, you know, seeing this little drop down box, it was like, how can you say I love you to, you know, your significant other without saying I love you? And it's like, that's hilarious. Right. And you're referring to love prose. Love prose. Yes. You recently uh, gave to me and I really uh, appreciate it. I, I told, I think I told you afterwards that I um, wanted to stop being an interactive human being afterwards and just acknowledge that I was some form of like a hormone driven robot because I think I'd said half of the cliched things or maybe all of them yeah and your book and by the time I was done I was like I don't think there's an original emotional bone in my body um my poetry okay aside like yeah but um the things we say to our loved ones are like the script is pretty regulated and and, and you really trot it out and it's it's like a terrifying avalanche of things that in the moment I thought were sincere. Yeah. But, I mean, are they not? I mean, aren't they? I think they are. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, Ulipo would, you know, back in the day, you know, just to go old school, Ulipo mm-hmm. said, like, all of, all of, uh, every book, every narrative is scripted. Mm-hmm. You're just kind of pulling the script out of the ether. And, like, instead, we're going to, like, mathematically create, you know, mm-hmm. well, you know, traps, or, sorry, mazes in which we will we'll devise the labyrinth for which we will escape you know mm. i think it's there's some I'm, I'm not getting that right so all my ulipo friends can like start making fun of me now mm-hmm. i think my, most insert, of them are probably insert, dead insert yeah. laugh track here no yeah i think many of them are very much still alive but <laughs> and i'm sure we'll be pissed no they won't be pissed whatever uh but you know it's like uh you 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 see the kind of like it's difficult because they're, they're very subtle structures in, mm-hmm, in, in mm-hmm. these kind of, you know, narrative arcs. I mean, obviously, if people are studying narratology, they can, you can trot out various kind of actual, very specific, uh, you know, tropes in narrative that, right. you know, do certain things. But in reality, when you're sitting back in Netflix and chilling, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the, the storyline is always kind of going the same way. Mm. And when it, when it actually surprises you, you know, you wake up and yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing <laughs> that I, I loved about that, well, I don't know, love is a funny word, but when you, when I got some anxiety after reading the book, so, yeah. but I, I appreciated being reminded that I was alive and a thinking creature because some things you read, you're like falling asleep reading it, you know, and you're yeah. just like, can I make it through this New Yorker piece on GMOs, mm-hmm. um, even though it's important? Yeah. Um, but with that, I was thinking, oh my God, all of our love language is totally coercive. I think that's what you really <laughs> captured yeah, is yeah. like, it's incredibly manipulative and yeah. coercive. It's yeah. it's sort of like it's by the end it's super sad. It's like love me, love me, love me, love me. <laughs> I mean, it, that the whole book could have been that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a funny thing because like I I see the that the kind of sad sack aspect, yeah. and I think that's that's like for sure. Yeah, and that's why initially I'm interested. Isn't this hilarious? They're going to say it this way, and that's that's a really weird way to say that and whatnot. Yeah. But then somehow I'm like. I'm like almost more interested in the brilliant variety uh-huh. that we are able to, you know, uh, which of which that slim chapbook is like 16 out of 16 million pages right. of actual reality. Right, right. You know? yeah. And so it's like that kind of, even though it is like it's sort of the same script, mm. which of course, as you said, every single sentence is there is just like, love me, love me. <laughs> but how many different ways can you say that? And it's fun. Yeah. And yeah, that, that's yeah, kind of exciting. Fun. And then I think, I think... And frightening. And frightening, yeah. Because you're like, and the moments that you've said such things, you think, oh, this is really cute, you know? Yeah. And then when you see hundreds of them, you sort of think, this is sort of less than cute. <laughs> less than cute. <laughs> and, then, and then, of course, I just put it all in alphabetical order, as is my tendency. I like mm-hmm. to put things in alphabetical order. I don't know why, but, you know... That's like A.B. Sideri, right? Yeah. And it, yeah. Published a book called A.B. Sidereo. Yeah. Uh, by Pablo Joffre, uh, similar kind of tendency. It's like when you go to learn your poetry terms and you're, you know, yeah. know it's the first one on the list. So yeah. that's why yeah. I know it. Yeah. I get kind of weak around R, but yeah. I'm strong. <laughs> I'm strong in A and B. Good, cool. Yeah. 
Probably me too. At some point, I really tried to learn the various rhythmic kind of terminology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to learn that to teach, and I yeah. and I always knew like everybody like iambic pentameter, and I felt like comfortable with that. But I realized as I taught it, I was like kind of faking knowing it. You know, like yeah. I was like, yes, it's Shakespeare, as if like that was enough of an explanation. It's iambic pentameter. Yeah. Uh, and then you realize like, oh, I actually have to know how this works. Yeah. yeah. I, there's there's a thing about the rhythm in poetry that I that was I'm not it's a, I want to say it's Florian Kramer but uh, an essay he wrote about like a Steven Seagal movie where there's mm-hmm. this DVD that if it's put into any computer it will like steal all the nuclear launch codes and it's like you know and it's just like if it actually ever goes into a computer it will just like steal all yeah. the nukes yeah they the sell world. that on amazon for 1999 yeah <laughs> it was an aol disc i think they were free but right <laughs> but uh but it was his thing was about this kind of executable language um you know and his fascination was like this is language that is ac- actually like performs magic in the world mm. and then of course he goes back into talking about these uh permutational poets and you know, and poetry then was written with certain rhyme and rhythm schemes, and the idea was that you would set up a structure whereby which, if you could, you know, recite all the possible versions within that structure, then of course you would see God. Mm. You'd be able to speak with God. Right, like the chanting notion. Yeah. Where language is both at its most lush meaning and meaningless. Yeah, and I'm going to get the name wrong on this, but the guy who discovered uh, calculus, uh-huh. the calculus, is because he was studying how to determine... The number of poems one could make hmm. because the thing is is once you move one word then you can only like put a, a certain kind of word back hmm. in other words the variables are are, are, are specific I used to know math stuff real good but mm-hmm. i don't know mores uh-huh. um, but uh you know if you move a word you can only put a word that has the same kind of rhythmic scheme in it so your available subset of words that you can put sure, back there sure, sure. that also keep the rhyme scheme the same is very specific so by studying these permutational poems, I want to say Lucretius, but that's not it. It's, I want to say Leotard, but that's not it either. It's got to be pretty late because calculus the guy is who post. Because uh, algebra is during the Islamic empire. Please edit this shit. Out. No, no. We'll, we'll figure it out. The we'll guy, drop a footnote. Yeah, we'll drop a footnote. Yeah. Calculus and poetry, very intimately related anyway. Well, you know, my so, grandfather, yeah. you know, gave me, uh, it was super, like, we misunderstood each other terribly in, in certain ways, and I'm dyslexic and. Um, my brain is just functions different than his and he was one of these like you know valedictorian types and he gave me a book of calculus for like my 16th birthday along with a new yorker subscription which the the second part i actually got something out of and he told me it was the most beautiful book he'd ever read and and for him it was almost as beautiful as reading shakespeare and that the 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 structure of calculus just moved him almost to tears and he was not an emotional man at all. So this was like a profound statement. I, I never saw him express amazing, anything actually. more than bafflement as yeah. like that's the most extreme emotion. So I think there is some connection there between like the architecture of reality that people yeah. perceive in mathematics and the architecture of the heart that people perceive in poetry, right? Yeah, for sure. And I and I mean I think calculus is only because that's like the level that I got to in you know, in math. At some point I did a class on elementary or elementary linear algebra which is a lot more simple than it actually is it's like matrices of numbers mm-hmm. and then it goes calculus on like a uh, on a level of like you know of more like what i'm talking about you change one number and it's mm-hmm. got to like fit within the system mm-hmm. and there's world conquest calculus comes next yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes so I don't know, you know, it's like that's that's the level of math that I can use as a metaphor for, mm. which is hilarious to use math as a metaphor, but I think it's great. You know? But the AB, AB Sideri is, in yeah. a way, it's a mathematical kind of, it's not math per se, but math isn't only, only just numbers, it's structure, it's form, it's so, yeah. so meter is mathematical for sure, yes. right? So, well, and the good, and the, especially and, in English, because it's about, it's, syllabi, it's syllabic, you know, instead yeah. of uh, about the length of the 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 vowels you know like it is in latin or yeah you know so it's it is kind of like tick 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 you know yeah i mean in the love prose chat book the i think the you know the alphabet is a good organizer in that you see the kind of refrains you know i will do this i you know etc you see kind of like uh yeah just the conglomeration of almost Mm. exactly the same thing um and then you know in that book i always I, I am very interested in, more interested in 
messing with prose than I am with quote unquote poetry mm. or like, you know, stuff that looks like language that people actually read on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love, you know, I love the world of poetry. Anyone that I've, I've found most people that come from outside of the poetry world end up at a reading and like sit there nicely at church and, mm-hmm. and also quite frankly, are often bored to tears because yeah. they don't really yeah. have a way into it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. Like, um, conceptual poetry, which, you know, to some extent yours is more approachable than something like Ken Goldsmith, where it's, it's very hard to get into unless you kind of understand the frame around which the boards are built. Yeah. Um, and so the sort of the immediacy and the consumer friendliness of it is not totally present. And in some ways I'm sympathetic to that as an art project and in some ways I'm you know, opposed to it. Uh, because I feel like it, it creates uh, and somewhat of an ivory tower kind of structure where yeah. you have to have a degree to understand to things. Understand, yeah. But I think your work does not, it sits comfortably in a place Mine's where people... Mine's completely pedestrian, don't Well, no, <laughs> that's not, no but I, I, uh, what I mean to say is that like those, that particular form you chose is, is it's almost like it's seductive because you think you, you, think you know yeah. what you're about to read and then you, 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 you take something familiar and make it very unfamiliar, which yeah. I think is actually... If I was smart enough to remember, there's a quote about that's what poetry is supposed to do. Right. Yeah. I don't remember the quote either. So. Yeah. It's one, of, it's one of the good ones from <laughs> well, mid-century. One of the good yeah. Ones. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was also thinking I can't, I, we can't um, move past the where we're at here without me mentioning Life of User's Manual by George mm. Breck mm. Um, as, a, as a sort of, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's about an apartment building and it tells a story of each, you know, apartment and the apartment building you basically lay you can lay a chessboard over over the floors and apartments mm. and he wrote the book as a knight moves across a chessboard mm. from one you know first position second position and then if you take the position that knight did across the chessboard to fill every square it makes what's called a magic square right where all the lines if you add up all the numbers in every single line yeah. both More horizontally math. and vertically they add, they add up to the exact same number mhm you know, and then and he wrote it, and I think that that this uh, his his like attic apartment is still well preserved. Wow, where he had just and he wrote it by just he had lists of things, and he also had various kind of routines on how he would get to what thing in the list. So he would go, you go into an apartment, and you have this elaborate description of like really mundane shit, like this table, and it mm-hmm. was the grain, and yada yada yada, mm. and uh. So there's that, and then the, the, the main thing about the story is that there's this guy who went to various seaside towns, mm-hmm. painted a watercolor mm-hmm. on the beach, mm-hmm. sent it back home. You know, this other guy took the watercolor, affixed it to, a, you know, up the board that you would make uh, puzzles out of. This puzzle maker made that into a puzzle, and the guy came home from his trip, made all the puzzles, each one getting harder and harder and harder. Once he finished the puzzle, sent it back to this, the port in which the painting was painted, and someone there specifically put it back into the water, and the painting disappeared. So it's this beautiful process mm-hmm. where in which everything is created, and yet nothing ends up happening. Right. I mean, right. or everything happens, and nothing—you know—it goes back to nothing. Everything's created, everything's uh, happening, but everything goes back to zero. And it's right. You know, it's like it's, um, it's this Love. notion about like once the artwork is viewed it somehow dissolves you know it's somehow yeah it's the the act of creation the act of consumption are and, connected and, but somehow disconnected in a way that um you know that's i think i often think about the difference between what drives someone to make art versus drives someone to buy it yeah you know? yeah and the, the dissolving in the ocean is this metaphor of the value of creation is this almost like i think it is like a conversation with god it's like a very spiritual yeah, thing yeah like, um, if you believe in that sort of thing, and if you don't, it's like this. Uh, like the, it, that's why I talk about inspiration because sometimes we don't know. We know not what we do. It's the muse flowing through us. The pen starts mm-hmm. to move, and we can't stop, and we're not quite sure why. Whereas the process of consumption, we can be moved by it, but it's in a very different way. Um, yeah. And so I think it's. I think that's always a negotiation I, between the artist and the audience, right? Yeah. And I would say in life users manual, it's not probably the most perfect metaphor for, you know, lens through which to see that conversation because ultimately that particular figure is doing that all just because that particular figure is so rich that he could do that. Right, right. And it's all just for his own enjoyment. Like, no one really sees the watercolor. So it's, in that way, it's like, it's a, it's a very much a closed system. And I think at the time that was like, 
a fascinating aspect of it, and yet, you know, within all those apartments, you see all the trappings of bourgeois culture of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so a lot comes out of it, but the but the central figure is just like this, like you know, like a an elaborate watch, an elaborate, you know, mm-hmm. that's it, mm-hmm. and like it's just telling time for itself. Yeah, you know, yeah, it reminds me of another quote from a poet whose name I can't remember. I'm good at remembering the substance, but not the source, which yeah. is unfortunate as somebody who's one of the sources, but. Uh, there's a notion that um, poetry has no use and that's its beauty, right? Mm. Um, and same thing with art. Yeah. You know? And once it has fu- use value or function, in other words, commercial value or 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 of use value as a puzzle, yeah. it ceases to be art in the yeah. same way, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there is a negotiation between the artist who believes what I just said and the viewer or the buyer who are like, you know, along a continuum of mis- yeah. misunderstanding of what an arts practice yeah. might, might really entail. So, and that's why I try to get to the bottom of this conversation because it's a different thing to go to a movie and sit passively and allow it to happen to you and a different thing to be the person who is impelled to make one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very commercial enterprise, but let's assume that it doesn't have le- to be commercial. At some level, right. There's some, a great world of video art. Of course, Southern of course. California yeah, especially, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, but, um, and I don't mean to get into this debate about pure or impure, but I just think the impulses are very different. Yeah. You know? And... And it creates something sort of beautiful in the exchange in, in the way Parekh describes it. And also when it becomes monetized so deeply, then it becomes a little bit less beautiful. Yeah. It's more confusing. And and I've been having those discussions with numerous friends over the past, like, you know, 20 years of living in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. Because living in Los Angeles over the past 20 years has been very fascinating to see, you know, little things crop up in Chinatown, mm-hmm. Culver City, etc. finally for downtown to come back. And of course, I'm, I, you know, I'm just telling, uh, I just have the particular lens that I have because I showed up in 2003 and I know that in the, mm-hmm. you know, in the early 90s, it, it was, the, the art world was very much already in downtown and then it left mm-hmm. and now it's back. But I only know that from talking to people who've been around. But, you know, discussion of the market and mm-hmm. like, you know, and I mean the market capital M. Right, um, right. Art market AM, you know. You know, it's always been in L.A., but it's mostly like people in L.A. with money go other places to buy art and then bring it back to L.A. Right, right, right. They'd right. rather buy the, buy the painting in Miami instead of just mm-hmm. driving down, you know, like two miles to buy it in L.A., <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right, so, but so that but But increasingly with New York galleries moving here, I feel like the market is, you know dictate so much and at this point you know you can say real estate market etc etc you know coming along with it but um i used to you know always be like yeah la right now is like new york 1972 and that was like probably Mm -hmm. you know 2003 when i first got here and uh you know and then in the mid to late aughts i think that la was like new york 1982 and so forth Mm -hmm. and so on I want to go back, um, yeah. if we could. It was thinking, you know, I think about this a lot, and I wonder if you have a reaction to this. And then I want to come back to your own practice, because I think we didn't touch on that enough. So I just <laughs> want to put a, put a little page mark in okay. that. Because uh, we were, I think we hit like 30,000 feet, and I want to kind of get down yeah, to some granularity. Because yeah, some, yeah. sometimes what this podcast, the podcast for me is, as a person who's re-embraced my arts practice after having left it for many, many years to... Um, do kind of shadow artist work uh, uh, to use the parlance of the artist's way in Julia Cameron's book. Uh, I finally sure. remembered an author's name. I feel good. Good work. Um, thanks. <laughs> and, uh, but that I was like supporting other artists or supporting businesses that I thought had like an artistic vibe to them because yeah. they cared about the world in a certain way that I found, you know, oftentimes it was former artists starting businesses. So I was like su- a supporter. I was like the roadie. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm making this transition. And so I'm trying to figure out you know what a what a life in, in art looks like that I that I I was confused about in my twenties and sort of left uh, for for doing quote unquote real work and now I'm back at it and and I have my own ideas I have my thoughts and feelings about it but I'm so interested in how people stay at it for long periods of time to sustain their interest and I was thinking about um, so we'll pay, bookmark that for a second but I was thinking about our discussion about Parekh had me thinking about this thing that I often think about is that there are people who walk through a public park and they see the flowers and some are content to see the flowers some want to paint the flowers some want to pick the flowers even though there's a sign that says you're not supposed to do it 
Others want to donate more money because they want more flowers. And some feel like they see that flower and they need to buy a flower, right? Like these are all different yeah, impulses. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. yeah. And I think the artist is the, the planter of the flower sometimes and, and the painter of the flower, right? Mm -hmm. And then all the other things, are those are different roles in society and they create some tension with the, the picker of the flower and the planter obviously are a little bit at odds. Um, yeah. And the the uh, the painter of the flower and the um, you know the the buyer of the flower are are doing different things. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and so I think that's that makes a clearer metaphor when we think about creation with a capital C, yeah. as opposed to what we create as like thinking about the difference between people who are uh, motivated or inspired, however you want to say it, to to do this funny practice of making the world more understandable or beautiful right yeah the beautiful is planting the flower understandable is painting it yeah you know? maybe. um you know like understanding beauty versus yeah, creating, designing you know, the garden right planting yeah, the flowers ex in exactly right, these yeah. impulses to, to 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 channel our natural impulses into something mm -hmm. that that can be explored um over time by others yeah and how it is explored over time by others is you know, not under the control of the artist always, right? So yeah. it can be just thrown into the ocean, you know, like in a... Yeah, and, and it's funny because it's like form, content, reception, right? It's mm -hmm. like, and if you're, if we're using the park, it's like, you know, it's like the form of the park or where the, where the you know, whoever designed the park. And that's, right. yeah. landscape design, that's cool. That's an yeah. art form, but most people, mm -hmm. most people probably wouldn't consider it uh, like so much of an art, of an art form. It's sort of like in that architecture world. It is right. an art form, but most people who practice it, you wouldn't consider artists. Right. A few, you're like, okay, all right. Well, I'm thinking you know? of the park as a container for this notion of like managed nature, which is yeah, yeah. human 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 yeah. human settlement is is a uh, in our or the way we create social structures that are that are unnatural but within a natural setting yeah. is like a park, right? Like our government is like. Yeah, like a park is a government of nature, you know, yeah. uh, of some kind, and our and the park is a metaphor for the economy, the government, the whole way things work. Although it's not very commercial. And probably my biggest problem would be that I want to do all of the things. You right. Know, well, wanna, yeah, you, wanna, you are doing I all of them. Right? Plant the flower, paint the flower, pick the flower, <laughs> sell the flower, <laughs> you know, arrange the flower. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like you want to do. I I have a, I have a tendency to kind of be like, uh, you know that that person who's like oh this is the thing we're doing so i'm gonna like how can i learn all the different aspects right that, right you know that go into creating this mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. park and the flowers like you know where do we get the fertilizer from you know right it's like who's making that you know it's well like, yeah that is the trouble know, with that you know you think about books and paper and you can lose your mind yeah you know? i mean that's a, you know i think initially i was making a lot of chat books on insert blogger but then it was just insert press right um, and, uh, we did a magazine where we like had, I think four registers and then hand sewn into like these covers. And it was like, it was great. It's gorgeous. Love mm. that thing. A uh, fold magazine, big fan. We did one issue. It folded because, you know, we were folding too many damn magazines. Right. <laughs> and, and it's so resource intensive. It's, it's yeah. resource, resource intensive. And it's just like, and also it's that thing where, you know, one, if you know yourself well enough, or for my for me, it's like I knew myself well enough that it'd just be like okay, so I can really get into those crazy artist books with like mm -hmm. accordion folds, you know, French flaps and Japanese binding and you know, etc. I mean, you know, once you once you're buying the book sewing needles and book thread, you're like, and I still have the you know little collection of book needles mm -hmm. and book thread, and I just kind of it's it's sandwiched in with other like early archives from insert blanc and i just keep it there and know that it's there and right. that i shouldn't go there right when you need your tactile fix <laughs> yeah well, but i i think your impulse is interesting and 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 admirable from my point of view is that you know frank lloyd wright said that you know bef before you learn to build a building you should learn how to lay brick now i'm, yeah. I'm not sure he actually did that because he was pretty upper crusty but maybe that was advice to others maybe yeah. he thought he should have done it but yeah but i do think the impulse to understand the craft from the bottom up even if you abandon it i think is 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 an interesting one you know and it, it gives you respect for the people who do that work right? for sure you yeah know, like, and that's the thing i mean i love all the you know the various books on like handmade books love to see what because it's it's yeah. it's cool yeah and i've you know been to the minnesota book art center which is a really good one you know i appreciate it i mean i you you've seen the old typewriters but mm -hmm. you know once you talk to real printers you get into like very specific heidelberg printers you're like 
you know, there's various cool names for Heidelberg printers. And I, I know various printers that have these little machines like in their studio. And it's like, how do you have a practice where right. in which you've got a one and a half ton object that whenever you move, yeah. you got to move that too. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. and well, so, you print, know, printing presses are, uh, I think, you know, rarer and rarer, rare and especially rare, the but, ones that yeah. um, do very heavy duty things like that. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Think, you know, the one by one kind of processes. Little clamshell guys. Yeah, then There's you the can, clamshell dudes. Yeah. Right, which is so like can, the portable typewriter or printing presses. Right. You know? And yeah. admir admiration for that too, but it's certainly much less capital and space intensive. So Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean for me it was like initially with Insert Blanc just making chapbooks because, you know, you go to poetry readings and you're like, Hey, you know, and sometimes it's your own or it's a friend's chapbook, but chapbooks are currency you trade mm -hmm. with other poets and that's how you get to meet them and uh. get to know them and you know uh as a younger writer you mm -hmm. know in la and also with la being the kind of you know diverse and sort of you know uh distributed system that it is uh you know it's like getting out into the various different poetry worlds of la mm -hmm. which there's a million so many you know and yeah, yeah which is which makes sense for a city a county like Los with Angeles, yeah, eight cities in it or something. Yeah, I think it, I might have made that up, but somebody but, told yeah. me the reason was eighty-eight. So I believe it. Yeah, yeah. So that actually adds a new category to our park metaphor, which is that it's the when artists exchange art with each other, which I always thought was like super glamorous in like the early days of the modern paint. I was like Picasso's given, you know, uh, yeah, stuff out to Brock, and they're just you know chilling with their little lithograph exchanges, mm -hmm. yeah, before their stuff was worth as much as it became worth. But it, that's almost like a seed exchange, right? That's like a, yeah, a right, whole right, other right. thing. Like here's yeah. something, you know, here's what I'm growing. Here's what you're growing. Yeah. And that, that adds another um, dimension to the metaphor. And I find that, you know, if the commercial exchange could be as um, modest as that, then I think people wouldn't get so uptight about the art world, right? You know, it's so I so think the thing is that it's not, no one pays a million dollars for a seed, right? Um, yeah, no, you know, I, I think unless they, it's I like think they might, but the rarest, you know, ruby grapefruit or something. Yeah, or like so bioengineered. I mean, they'll right. pay they'll pay millions of dollars to and a seed that and a seed that like yeah. the minute you buy it, you don't intend to plant it. Yeah, right. right. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I mean, my thing with the market, which I have a whole, you know, I mean, I was writing an intro essay for uh, this recent book, Hyper Effigy by Brian Getnick, and going mm -hmm. through a lot of his writings and a lot of his the things that he's published mm -hmm. and other artists writings and i just got really obsessed by like you know the market and i was shooting uh notes back and forth to him and he uh very very subtly delicately deftly helped me to edit out all of the stuff all of my insane like ramblings about the market but mm -hmm. it did come to one one thing that i that i would hope is that the market would become more curious because mm -hmm. i think that that exchange of chapbooks Mm -hmm. among poets it's it comes out of a basic level of curiosity right and you want to know what i want to know what the what the poets in the east bay are doing i yeah. want to know what the poets actually who are staying who are living in san francisco right which maybe there's one or two left but you know back in you know the or mid aughts you would go up and there would still be poets living in san francisco it's right. crazy right it's and highly want, personal too yeah, yeah. it's, very it's like getting to know the person yeah. through this other side of them and whether know? it's their writing or something that you know on a chapbook press they they decided to publish this mm -hmm. writing of a friend of theirs, you know, mm. or just a poet that they knew or whatever. And like their work, you know, it's still, it's very, it's very intimate. It's very, it, it's comes from a basic level of curiosity. I think the market, uh, on the other hand, in the, on the art world is fundamentally not curious. Right. Um, I, you know, you see, and I think the art language and the art speak like does a lot of heavy lifting to keep us not so curious to make mm. the, because the, I mean, yeah, the blue chip dialogue, you know, where they yeah, analyze which, the, analogize uh, and analyze the, yeah. the art world in relationship to the stock market, which yeah, that kind of invidious comparison, which now seems actually quite comparable, yeah, um, mm -hmm. has created the, the language. You talk about the power of language, the program that destroys the system or grabs yeah, the yeah. nuclear codes. That's kind of like the nuclear option for the integrity of art. You know? yeah. And I don't think we are facing a very unusual system where capital kind of crept into, is creeping into every corner of our lives. Oh, and yeah, certainly totally. by yeah. mid-century, capitalism was winning in that regard too. Yeah, and if not, they got Clement Greenberg to uh, you know make sure that uh, that American art was like ascendant across the globe. Oh yeah, then the CIA, the CIA plant, right? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, 
So it's like, you know, creating the language to, to create empire. And then mm-hmm. I mean, the thing is, is like in the art, I think in the art, art world, and maybe this is true in, in poetry and literature as well, but I find it to be really much more clear in the art world. You could see when like there were, you know, when art writers had a lot of power, then all of the artists started writing their own, right, doing their own writings. Mm-hmm. They're like, you guys are going to tell me what my work is about. Well, then I'm going to sit down and jot some stuff down and, mm-hmm. and craft my own story about the work, you know? Mm-hmm. And then... And then, and I think more recently, you see artists doing weird interventions at fairs. Mm. Um, you see all these offshoot kind of fairs, which end up being often exactly the same as like uh, the difference between Basel, Miami, and Nada Nada Art Fair, Miami. I don't know. Right. If there's a huge right. difference. I think people on the mm. ground would be like, "Well, yeah, if you're in Art Basel, that's one thing. If you're in Nada Art Fair, that's kind of a night like not as cool." But I mean, basically, to me, they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Felix Art Fair versus, you know, Art Los Angeles Contemporary or whatever else, mm-hmm. or, or, or the new Freeze Art Fair, right. you know, at Paramount. Like, mm-hmm. are they, well, Freeze obviously is the big game. Felix right. is this Felix just, yeah, game. just yeah. started this weekend. Yeah, yeah, I was talking to my partner about that because we were trying to like get a sense of what the LA art world was and I'd never heard of Felix before and I sort of, and it, it's located in a, in a hotel, yeah. which very, is a very Miami-ish kind of thing. And she was saying, like, she's been working in the art world for ages, and, and she said, um, uh, yeah, art worlds are really great. Um, art fairs are really great if you want to see uh, a lot of really mediocre art and do a lot of really good cocaine. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was like, okay, fair enough. Okay, yeah. So I guess and we I've, won't be going to that. Yeah, and I've mostly, I think I went to a couple LA art fairs when they were not worth going to. I mean, I'm sorry, but the early aughts, like the LA art fairs were just like, they were at the Barker hangar. They weren't that great. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to early ones as like a, uh, you know, a viewer. Mm-hmm. And then anymore, it's like, if I'm at an art fair, I'm like working. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, I go to these yeah. art fairs with great excitement, you know, and freeze, freeze yeah. in New York, you take a boat to it. So it's like kind of oh, this like that's very cool. romantic yeah. thing. And the boat ride's kind of the best part, by the way. Oh, it's love yeah. boats. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, hands look, down. Well, you know, crossing uh, <laughs> yeah. the. The ferry, you know, yeah. that's uh, Walt Mittman right there. Yeah, I was like right tracking there. his discourse yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in real time. And um, I I get there still with, with some degree of excitement, although then I, I realize it's like a cattle uh, process all through all these little gates that you're herded. Yeah. And then I end the whole process feeling exhausted and, and, and used. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, and you saw like one thing. That you yeah, realized. yeah. Like and one I'm thing like, that was a little like, exciting. I'm like, huh, okay, uh, why are we all here? Um, yeah. Yeah. Why, feels, did, why it, did I decide to spend, you know, six hours here? And it feels like you're more tracking like trends than actually looking for something interesting. You're yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, I'm, so this I'm is really excited about the doing. pizza that's usually there. Yeah. You because know, it's like Roberta's or something. <laughs> yeah. nice. <laughs> and then you're like, oh my God, I'm more interested in the pizza than the art. Something is oh, very, no. very wrong with me. I, I mean, guess. I, it's funny because it's really easy to sit around and uh, shit talk art and be super cynical. No, I think I'm doing the opposite. I, no, I think, I, yeah. I think I'm, 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 Maybe I'm overly romantic about art or I'm overly a booster. Yeah. But the art and the art market should not be confused. Like that illusion, that, so. that invidious comparison, yeah. that illusion is exactly what all the galleries want us to believe. Um, and I think that's, that's a mistake. I was talking to um, the guy that ran Acme Gallery for years. He came over here during COVID actually to see the show that we had up. The longest running show at Insert Blanc Press because it opened on February 29th, right before COVID, and I think it came down early to mid October. Mm-hmm. But he, he, you know, and, and Acme Gallery was at like uh, 1650 Wilshire, you know, it was a kind of like well known little art complex there by LACMA. And then mm-hmm. they moved to Frogtown for like a year and then they just like shut down. And they, they represented great artists, they had mm-hmm. really great shows over the years. Mm-hmm. And he was over here and he was like really excited by this gallery space because, mm-hmm. you know, we were sitting outside. And this is the outside gallery, right? No, this the no the inside gallery. Actually. So there's the inside gallery general, and outside yeah. gallery. I should have I should have picked up on that. That's Gen- pretty general projects uh, is the inside one. We started as outside gallery because we had a weird yard that mm-hmm. nothing happened in, and mm-hmm. we figured something could happen there. Um, but that's that's the opportunist that's the opportunistic kind of uh, purview that you have to have as like a as an artist trying to make art happen in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, mm-hmm. and uh, and I think New York taught us that yeah a long time ago. It's yeah. Like, Oh, I've got a weird closet. Yeah. It's now an art space. Yeah, that was yeah. like, you know, this, this people glamorize the 70s um, and maybe the 30s with some good reason. It's like people 
um, operating outside of the mainstream and kind of artists interacting with artists. Mm. Um, and, and then slowly people like Leo Castelli catches on in the 70s. And I don't know who, I guess the analog is um, Peggy Guggenheim in the yeah. 30s. Right, they catch up to the, the movement and in some ways things go downhill from there. Yeah, and so, and I feel very bad because I did not remember the name of the past owner, director of um, Acme Gallery because he is great. Mm. But uh, he said he eventually got out because he found the, like the art advisors, mm-hmm. the art advisors, and oh, basically the yeah, the advisors to the wealthy clients. Yeah, yeah, and 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 in some senses, like the the collectors themselves were were basically they had the money and every and they were the ones they were incre- they've been increasingly taking up more space at the table, more mm. like just they've just been taking up more like they've been saying what they want, you know, yeah, and and dictating what artists are creating even more so than gallerists or museums or these fairs or whatever and he was just like I just didn't want to listen to some art advisor or some and you know art advisors good job good for you great position mm-hmm. you know not 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 knocking it not knocking on not really shit talking collectors but I feel like I I mean I can't identify because I don't really work in that mm-hmm. art market right well, I, I think it's act, like I, a... I exist like barely alongside of it you know well, I think it's an interesting thing that you raise, and I have a friend who acts as an art advisor, and I'm really happy for her because it's Great. it's a stable yeah, I'm employment, sure it's a cool and job. you know, yeah. it's like you know, this is the boat we're on. You know, yeah. like if we yeah. if we could redesign the boat, maybe she would have a you know work in a museum, because, yeah. you know, or something. But um, but I was uh, what made me think of is that um, real estate brokers play the same role, right? Mm-hmm. In real estate, yeah, yeah. but analogizing again art to real estate is the notion is why are the real estate brokers because this you know 30 percent of your income is going to be spent on real estate and it's you need to control the risk as a yeah, buyer yeah, or yeah. as a seller yeah, yeah. that as a seller they you exist get, for you know, great reason they, and right. they have a, an and, education in that world that actually helps them make right. those decisions yeah. but de-risking art mm-hmm. is is like an absurd notion right like that's right that's yeah. and that's why yeah. your friend at acme objected because he was just like people yeah. who make art are not about creating de-risking anything mm-hmm. yeah like and that's what i'm saying the difference between a seed exchange or a yeah, yeah. like yeah, 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 we yeah. want to create outrageous beauty and ugliness and yeah. we don't want anyone to say whether it has value or not like why is you know why do paintings sell better than sculptures or installations or videos all those people have spent countless amount of hours crafting and perfecting their art well the only commodity that sells is units right mm-hmm. like an apartment or in, mm-hmm, in the real estate mm-hmm. analogy. So I think there's a tension there that we all feel as makers, you know, that, and luckily in poetry, we don't have to worry about that because no one will ever pay more than, you know, a thousand dollars for anything we ever write. But um, unless we're like, you know, one of the 10 poets who actually makes money. But um, so we've chosen this. I often make a joke that there's only one letter different between po- poverty and poetry Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. in English. Yeah. Um, and, um, but it's uh, it's it's a powerful notion that 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 de-risking art is making art less powerful yeah. uh, to both for the for the artists who feel like they have to conform to ha- have a career within a context that you could have a career, which is in some ways an absurd notion too, and and to the um, to the buyer who's feeling like you know suddenly the marketplace is exaggerated to the point where they need to have someone hold their hand through it, right? Mm -hmm. And they can't trust their own impulses. Yeah, and they don't, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, it's like the art market after the 2008 crash rebounded almost immediately and with, with, fervor. Yeah, faster than, faster than the market market market. (laughs) because it was the people who never lost their capital were like, they they went on feeding friends. Yeah. Plus they, all their vacations are scheduled around these fairs. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, it's like, it's a little bit funny when you go to these things, you know, anyway, so. Yeah, but I mean... Somebody out there with a very active whoopee cushion practice. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Let's roll the tape back, actually, in this moment uh, yeah. of, of pause. It's like, yeah, good. so yeah. you have so many um, fish to fry or, or balls to juggle, and I don't know what metaphor to mm-hmm. use from the, the cliched book. Lights to spin. That'll be that next yeah. book that you write, is yeah, things sure. that people say that, yeah. and they don't know what to say, um, which is basically all of us all the time. But yeah. um, 
how do you what how do you prioritize like what what's it what's an average mat day like like what is yeah, there, is so, there an average I mean, mat day or? yeah like more so lately and you know i mean uh, and there was before uh um covid more of an av- you know, a, a, a normal day mm-hmm. and then we had to find another normal day right so, right yeah yeah so, that's true which is been, which has been interesting i mean i've i i'm not a morning person mm-hmm. uh but i have been I've been finding a lot of enjoyment out of becoming a morning person. And you got drafted into the morning. I, I mean, I dig it. I'm into it. I like it. And I've tried at different times in my life to become a morning person. Um, but now I fully am, and it's great. And the first thing is really good coffee. Yes, you were correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, I sensed a, a, a caffeine yeah. kind of vibe. And yeah, I've realized it's probably my favorite drug, or yeah. you know, the one it's, I use it's, the most. It's so reliable and yeah. in some ways fairly gentle. So yeah, yeah, fairly mm-hmm. gentle. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Although sometimes when you have that second cup, you're like, "This is not so gentle." The second yeah. cup, that's hilarious. <laughs> I know, but I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little baby. Yeah, yeah, but well, no. My mom used to drink know. eight cups. I mean, she I, uh, was jacked like on a, black a coffee. A liter of coffee a day, you know, just a little less. Oh, but, but you, a liter but you, of coffee. but you offset it with you said with a tremendous amount of water. So yeah, I drink tons. Water, yeah. If you didn't yeah. do that, you would find your nervous yeah, system, would be dying. and yeah, yeah it would be, it would but, be, you would have nerve endings that you yeah. never felt before. But I mean, the I think the COVID. It, I mean, I think before COVID, I was trying to do this thing where it's like I will. I'm not going to work on Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to like actually have weekends. They give yourself a Sabbath. It's great, you know, uh, and that never really quite happened. Um, but I tried to like treat the week as a work week, and whether I was actually working that week or not. Um, on freelance gigs, you know, you'd find the press or my own work or whatever. Um, now it's just like, you know, multiple nested to-do lists. Mm. I'm a, I'm a, besides being a little OCD, I'm an inveterate multitasker. So Mm. it's like, and the whole, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the spinning plates, balls to juggle, whatever, um, uh, boxes to box or, you know, something, something. But, uh. I mean, my thing is to actually have a lot of projects all going at the same time and mm. allow things to be at their different stages. And this is the same way I write. You know, you come over here and work on this nibble on this thing for a little bit. And sometimes you take a big bite out of it. You know, some, sometimes it just pulls you in and you go down the rabbit hole. And that's great. Um, but a lot of times you kind of nibble on something and then go back over to this other thing and, you know, and just keep on pushing the ball forward on multiple different projects. And that's the way, I mean... I publish a lot of books on Insert Blanc Press, and we do a lot of gallery shows, and we do readings mm-hmm. and events, and I don't really know how. Uh, I do. It's pretty. It is almost entirely a hundred percent me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get a lot of. I, recently, I've had a lot of help from my partner Nicole. Mm-hmm. Um, the event we did, which where I met you, uh, called We Made It. Um, that was which is your fifteen year anniversary. Fifteen right? year anniversary. Which, congratulations! Yeah. That's for a small press. Like that's it's a huge <laughs> milestone. Yeah. Making it's it past year, time. year champagne. five yeah. is a big year. <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. yeah, right. But uh, but yeah, I mean, she helped a lot with that, and then and uh, and then you know, I mean, basically. She, 90% of the content you know she she put together so Amazing. you know it was like the books and the and the art in the gallery that was me but the you know the rest was was Nicole um and it was beautiful because it was like yeah. this fusion for me as a newcomer to Los Angeles I'd never been um since you know very you know long time ago in a galaxy far far away in this place where artisans making different kinds of ceramic you know textile uh artist print artists poets hanging out you know it, comics it didn't, as well and you it, know? comics right so it didn't feel but it didn't feel like an art fair it felt like you know this very organic artist serving artists kind of community and i thought i had sort of landed a little piece of heaven you know because yeah, it, it felt very like a rare and fragile thing you know yeah and it was also because we were just like a week well no just a few days before the mask mandate was fully taken off and uh you know, in LA, I think it was like we were the weekend before yeah, right. LA completely opened up. So yeah, June fifteenth, they took it off. Yeah, we were. I think it was, was like a couple days before. You yeah, know, yeah. So, yeah, it was a very fragile, scary moment. Yeah, but we were all outside. You mm-hmm. know, so it was great. But uh, yeah, it felt very liberating for that yeah. reason too. I think it was the first large performance gathering that I'd been at um, since COVID too, because yeah. I. I've only seen things online, you know. So yeah, they, yeah, exactly. So that was sort of bracing too. I was like, oh, people, and they're together, and they're talking, and we're 
chatting in little groups and moving to other little groups. And, yeah, and it was you know, I don't have to go to look in this little box and go in a breakout room. Yeah, know? yeah. Right. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Um, I teach online, and I actually like it for a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, for for the kind of fluidity of, of an arts gathering, it's 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 very uh, difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I believe it. So you're saying that how what how do you prioritize? How do you? Oh yeah. Which baby gets fed? You know. That's another metaphor too. Yeah, or pots on the fed. stove. Pots I was coming stove, up with yeah. a couple others. Yeah, yeah. Well, you keep a lot of things on the back burner. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lot of back burner. You must have yeah. one of those enormous California-style stoves that look like Cadillacs. It is that. I mean, um, you know, I think uh, later this afternoon I'm talking with an amazing artist about... Um, uh, she has a, ha- a neon primer handbook. Mm. It's like a, an artist handbook uh, of how to do... Um, you know how to make an entire neon uh, studio she starts with you wow know, she starts with like I don't know something like 67 million uh, BCE light you know, light existed she's got a whole history of, of like light and how we channeled it and it's different than other handbooks on neon because it's not really for the sign maker yeah which those books exist there's only a couple of them out there um, this is, you know, from the perspective of an artist, and it's a great book. And she did a sort of like a Mark Kurlansky book, right? Like a Salt or nineteen sixty eight, like a deep dive into he, a single subject. Yeah, and it's it's very practical. There's mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, there's straight up diagrams. Like, here's how you make this piece. Here's, you know, mm-hmm. here's how, uh, you know, these different gases like actually interact. So um, cool. And she handmade the first hundred. Uh, 200 copies holy smokes screen printed all the text holy smokes all the, it's so beautiful it's, it's like a full color object and they sold out in, in like a second and she was selling them for you know way too cheap i would think for what she did i'm mm. uh you know it was made in a, such a way so that if you held the the color pages under a different color light like the like wow. the ink would glow differently or show up differently it's a gorgeous book so we're gonna do like a as she called it calls it a machine printed edition Mm-hmm. Um, and You're it's very exciting. It down. Yeah, we're drilling it down. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're yeah, but we're kind of at you know like with that project, we're sort of at the phase of like how do we need to redesign this book to work for mm. you know maybe a print on demand framework, right? You know, can it work? Yeah. Uh, there, you know, um, you know, figuring out what it wants to be. Like in a way, you know, we've discussed like oh maybe we do like just a black and white edition so that it's mm. like. $18 and then we do like a you know a workbook that's full color nice screen printed or maybe we do just a full color edition and it's a little expensive but it's not as expensive as the handmade one so it's a lot of figuring out to me a lot of times it's I always think the material tells you what it wants to do mm. as my work as an art handler you know you figure out you know you're dealing with weird contemporary sculpture but usually if you're paying attention to the object, it tells you how to handle it. You know right, what I mean? Right, that's really interesting. Um, that goes back to like sort of where we started about um, this, this sort of riff we had on, you know, anxiety and irritants versus inspirations. And thinking about, I've my last uh, guest on the on the podcast was Elena Karina Byrne, and and oh, yeah. she and she referred to um, art making as problem solving, which I think I've heard many times and. I've heard that from the business world and from the policy world, which yeah. I worked in both. And it's, but how do you how do you react to that? Is it is you see yourself? It sounds like when you when you refer to this this project, well, when that you're your talk, your motivation yeah, is problem solving. To some it extent. is to a certain extent when you're talking because you're because in this case it's like I'm I'm publishing a book. I'm not like mm-hmm. creating Mona Lisa. You know, we're not I'm not like David sculpting. You know, right? So somebody had to make that frame. Yeah, true. It's I mean I. Probably more than anything, I've over the last twenty years, my time in Los Angeles, I've had the best time creating platforms, frameworks, mm-hmm. spaces for things to happen in, and and at times they're very blank, empty. Uh, at, at you know, insert blank press, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, insert blank press, whatever. Um, and sometimes they have a little bit more, you know, more more something around them. To define them, you know, mm-hmm. um, and in my own work, a lot of times that's it's a very similar practice. It's like creating, for example, again, love prose, which is just because we it's it's a good example to keep on kicking down the road. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, you create a simple. A, it, it, a lot of times, I'm just like into creating simple rules. Well, we're gonna take 
you know, this section of how, you know, go to web, a few websites that tell you how to say I love you without saying I love you or, you know, because mostly it doesn't say directly I love you. Mm-hmm. But of course, some, some of those websites even allow that in. And I was just like, well, these are the pros. These mm-hmm. are the pros. They're telling me how to set, how, mm-hmm. how to spin my love pros. The pros, right? pros. Pros, pros, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's 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 it. And and uh, one of the things I've... My biggest downfall is that I try to be, like, exhaustive. And, like, kind of, you know... And uh, and my book, Credit, is a perfect, uh, you know, example of that. And how it can go at least okay, let's say. But uh, I've learned to, like, you know... Oh, well, I went to those websites that day and grabbed that language. Therefore, mm-hmm. that's that's the language I'm going to work with. I think um, talking to a poet in New York, uh, met him on a rooftop in uh, Bed-Stuy, you know, and I was in a, uh, you know, in a hotel in Manhattan and taking her, he, we took a car back and, you know, he had had kids and uh, he was like, yeah, poetry is just what happens when I have 15 minutes on my desk Mm -hmm. and so for me it's like i don't think i mean i know that most poets will like be like it's not the same thing but like the that day i accessed those websites and that's the language that i'm working with and because but you know the because people like to talk about inspiration and it being necessarily quote unquote you know anathema to like this kind of conceptual writing Mm -hmm. that emotion doesn't exist in this conceptual world and that's been my game for a while is finding I mean so the book Love Prose is uh, from a larger book that I've been working on called Encouraging Words and I've been looking for Mm -hmm. you know love language uh, you know looking at just encouraging words in various different places so like exercise speech like an exercise Mm -hmm. coach like what they say between like one two three you can do it you know looking for those you can do it you know things Mm -hmm. and finding those kind of uh, and then you know going through Republican uh debates and finding all the, uh, you know, encouraging things that they actually say, uh-huh. right. um, and spinning it into a stump speech that is surprisingly, you know, encouraging. Well, let's say, uh, go. And affirmations. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you realize that because they're using all kinds of language that's trying to get you to be like, you know, like, like we do. And it turns out that sometimes, yeah, they really do. And it's yeah. kind of fucked up. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's like, um, there's a fine line, you know, that when I had um, John Hall on to talk about his daily negations, which is his mm. reaction to the, and he spoke about how his response to negations are more gentle because um, they don't require anything of you, <laughs> right? Whereas an affirmation is like a, is often in a command form, right? Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is very, um, it's coercive, you know, yeah. and it's you know the imperative is an imperial tone, right? So yeah, and, uh, and, and so and... it's it can be encouraging words can also be commanding yes you know, and, and they can be so just nice. as saccharine and yeah. actually ugly as like well worse than saccharine know. they can be part of the hegemony right yeah yeah so. exactly yeah so it's i mean in a way of a, in, like looking at that kind of language and uh and not being afraid for it to be encouraging but also understanding that it can be it contains just as much of our like of, of our kind of neuroses our our anxiety mm-hmm. as it does our inspiration and you know right. so the love pro as, as we were talking about with love pros it's like you know you had this kind of even though i say like oh isn't it amazing and we get all this it's brilliant the human mind we get all these uh different varieties of the ways to say i love you but at the same time it's like it's ew that's kind of it's kind of yeah 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 and when you see them all together you sort of think like um, it's not so pretty. And yeah. It's like, you know, it's... Like, and it is coercive. Yeah. Like, a lot of those, yeah. a lot of that language is kind of, like, coercive in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's bur- it's burdensome, you know, like, keep it to yourself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just do it with yeah. your eyes. Show yeah. it with your yeah. body. Yeah. Um, so, speaking of which, um, let's turn to something that has inspired you. A lot of the works that you produce of other artists obviously have to... Um, capture a place in your your heart mind and then physically you have to like lift them up and make yeah. them can yeah. you share with us a piece from one of with the more recent oh, sure. um, uh, artists that you supported and, and published I'm going to read from Harold Abramowitz's piece it's and then in here and it's the it's from Colloquy at the Abyss a fugitive amalgam with uh, Will Alexander it was a book I did during COVID that we published during COVID of a conversation they had, I think, back in hmm. quite a long time ago. Yeah, uh, I'm an owner of this book and quite enjoy it. Thanks. Yeah, 
So it's a, let's see, where are the, com well, anyway, conversation they had a while back, so, and then we published some of, you know, their individual pieces, and I apologize, Harold, in advance. He reads it better than I will right now, but I'm going to do my best. So I'm just going to read the first bit here. It was one or it was the other, that much, and violence, if you were a prince. That was the way the picture wanted to go, to put up its fists and fight. But we were broken for the way we spoke of mediation, as if your emotions were better than anyone else's. It was in the way we looked at time. It told us, told us all sorts of things. I was walking. I was eating food from the palm of my hand, and then I wondered what the point was. Troubling times. It is the force that folds the violence that calls us names. I'm a junior lying in my casket, and that was before you believed in me. What I would then say to you is about the state of my heart. I was a child, a junior, but we call each other by name all the time, and the way we, were, we are falling now is even more meaningful than it was at first. But who knows, it takes all kinds, and then bright colors, and then you are feeding me feeling, and then you want to tell me that the world is this way or that way. I was walking on my knees, I put my hands in my pockets, and then you asked me something. I ran out of the house crying, I put my hands in my pockets, and told you that I was going to feel much better. So that's the beginning of that piece, anyway. Yeah, and it goes on for, for yeah, I think several pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting book, and the conversation between artists actually—it's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of some of the things that we've touched upon. Yeah, obviously they're doing it from a different point of view, but it's um, it's always interesting those dialogues. Um, it's been a super pleasure talking yeah, to you, and thank you. Um, I I always feel like each conversation I have is like referencing the previous one, at least in my mind and kind of, and I bring those forward. And so I think there's like a, there's a development that I feel. And, and, uh, and I think today was, was moving that, that kind of understanding forward. So I appreciate That's it. That's great. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's been great.